Marsh and I have known each other for a long time. We were seminary buddies back 40 years ago this June. Can't believe it, 40 years since I graduated from seminary. Steve is the senior pastor at Geneva Presbyterian Church in Laguna Woods, California. For the last 10 years, Geneva Press has hosted a Taiwanese congregation who met and worshipped with them. This last Sunday, they were gathered to celebrate the departure of a pastor who was going back to Taiwan. They were circled around their pastor to take pictures and to bid him farewell. And an armed assailant entered in and began firing into the crowd. Almost immediately, a Dr. John Cheng charged directly toward the assailant. He was shot and killed. But in the confusion that he created, the pastor picked up a chair, struck the assailant in the head, the congregants tackled him, knocked him to the ground, disarmed him, hogtied him with an extension cord until the police could come. To that, of course, we say bravo. All of our staff have been trained in active shooter, uh, active shooter uh, tra- uh, situations. It is a grim reality of our modern uh, situation, our modern times, that we would have to be focused on such things as a congregation, but that is our reality. And this response, this response to fight back, to throw chairs or Bibles or hymnals at an active shooter, rather than groveling and pleading, that is exactly what we are trained to do, what these people did. Exactly what we are trained to do. But you never know. You never know if you're going to have the courage that Dr. Ching showed that day. You never know if you'll have the courage to be the first one to fight back. If you'll have the courage to be the one to run toward the threat instead of away from it. And this morning I want to talk about courage. As I said earlier, we are in a series called Our DNA, and we are looking at nine qualities, nine values that we hold sacrosanct, that are precious to us, and which we believe, taken together, make Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill. The first three we call our head values. This is what we believe. We are reformed. We are egalitarian. That is, that we ordain both men and women to the offices of the church. And we are spirit-filled, as Pastor Rachel preached so well. That is, we invite the Holy Spirit into our midst. We are Presbyterians who welcome the Holy Spirit into this place. So these three beliefs taken by themselves, that we are reformed, we are egalitarian, and we are spirit-filled, those are enough to, to form a very distinctive subset of American evangelicalism. There are not a lot of churches that hold to all three of those things. But that's not all that we think defines our DNA. There's more to it. And so we move not from, from our head to our heart values. Our heart values, we embrace humility, we embrace courage, we embrace accountability. If the first three are what we believe, then these second three are how we behave, or at least how we hope to behave. 
We hope that all three of these are true about us. We hope that we will be a humble and courageous and accountable church body. It is what we aspire to be. As Pastor Julie preached so well last week, I, I hope that we are and will continue to be a humble church. We are large and we are influential and we are well-resourced. It would be easy for us to become arrogant and self-sufficient. And God help us, I pray that we will avoid such pride like the plague. And after the last two years, we understand a little bit more what that phrase might mean, don't we? I, I pray that all of us, our pastors and our elders, our leaders, our members, your senior pastor, I pray that we will emulate the Lord Jesus who left everything that he had in heaven, who emptied himself and came and became one of us. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I pray that as a body we will always embrace humility and courage. The kind of courage that doesn't wait for problems to arrive but moves toward them. The kind of courage that was displayed by Dr. John Ching. And frankly, the kind of courage I believe has been exhibited over our 60 years as a congregation. We live in a time of great challenges. They are not unprecedented even though we think they are. But they are certainly daunting enough, aren't they? And if we do not... If we cannot, if we dare not face these challenges with courage, our witness for Jesus Christ will be muted and we will join the, the thousands, perhaps the tens of thousands of churches that are withering into irrelevancy. I pray that we will continue to be a courageous church, a courageous people. And our text for this morning is one of the greatest stories of courage that you'll find in the Scriptures. And perhaps the most familiar Bible story of all is it is the account of a, a battle between a gigantic Philistine warrior and a young shepherd boy, David and Goliath. The Philistines and the Israelites are encamped on opposite hillsides and they are overlooking a valley called Elah, the valley Elah. And the Philistine champion, a giant named Goliath, has challenged the Israelites to send out a champion of their own. It will be a fight to death between two men, winner take all. Every morning, Goliath strides out into the valley to mock the Israelites and to mock their God. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. For 40 days he did this. 40 days, morning after morning after morning, Goliath appears and repeats this challenge. But the Israelites are too terrified. There is no man who is willing to take up this gauntlet. Until a young shepherd named David arrives in the camp bringing supplies to his big brothers who are fighting in the army. And he witnesses Goliath's mockery and he is indignant. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? His big brothers told him to shut up. And he wouldn't do it. He went to King Saul 
And he offered to fight the guy. The king says, you, you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David makes his case. He said, I used to keep sheep for my father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. I have struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. And since there wasn't exactly a long waiting list of men who were willing to fight Goliath, Saul reluctantly agreed. And so we pick up the story, this epic story, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 40. Listen now to God's word. Then he took his staff in his hands and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to, to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a stone from the wadi in the valley of Elah, from the dry brook bed. There's only one brook bed in the valley of Elah. I have been there. And that is the valley where David slew Goliath. And it is from that same brook that David pulled out five more stones, just like this one, and put them into his pouch. And you know the rest of the story. Everybody knows the story. The most irreligious person in the world has heard the story of David and Goliath. And I thought I knew the story pretty well. But it was, it was a few years ago that I began to notice something I had never seen before. And it just jumped out at me. I'm going to read the verse that captured my imagination again. 
And I, I wonder if you might notice what I'm talking about. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came near drew, and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Did you see it? Anything jump out at you like it did at me? When Goliath was done talking and mocking, when Goliath decided that it was time to crush this annoying little bug, when, as the writer indicates, he arose and came and drew near to meet David, what did David do? He ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Listen, it would have been enough if he had stood his ground, don't you think? For him to simply stand his ground would have been impressive. Goliath was over nine feet tall. He probably weighed more than 600 pounds. The spearhead that he carried, the spearhead alone was 15 pounds. The mail that he wore, his armor, was 125 pounds. He must have looked like a mountain lumbering toward this little guy. Last week, we were on our way home from a family reunion, and we stopped in my hometown of Yakima. And we went to visit one of the, the elementary schools there, Summit View Elementary, where I used to be an assistant football coach for the elementary football team. We went out to the field where we practiced. And I remember one practice where I was frustrated with the running back because he wasn't hitting the line. He was timid as he was running towards the line. And I said, give me the football. I'm going to show you how to do this. And so I got the football. I said, now watch. This is how you hit the line. I want you all to tackle me. So the whole dang of kids stood up there. And I dashed into the line, crashing through this defensive line of elementary kids and promptly broke the arm of our star quarterback. Good coaching. How much more did Goliath loom over David? For David just to have stood his ground would have been courageous. But what are we told he did? He ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He ran toward the giant. And ever since I have noticed this, it has become one of my mantras. He ran toward the giant. It is a familiar saying on our staff, run toward the giant. If you have a gigantic problem that is lumbering toward you, if you've exhausted all diplomacy, if the issue isn't going to go away, and in fact it is barreling down on the tracks toward you, don't turn tail and run. And, and don't even just hunker down and wait for the battle to come to you. If the battle is inevitable, take the fight to the problem. Run toward the giant. This is one of the most courageous moments in the Bible. This teenager, this kid, armed with a stick and his secret weapon, a slingshot, and more importantly, armed with the power of the Lord in whose name he was prepared to do battle, this kid ran toward a giant that was twice his size and took him out with one well-placed shot. What courage. When I look back over the life of this congregation, when the story is written of Chapel Hill's impact upon our community, upon our nation, upon our world, I believe it will be said of us 
That we are a church that was willing to run toward the giant. We didn't look for a fight. We never wanted to pick fights. But when we were confronted with giants, issues of principle that we could not ignore, daunting challenges that would have been easier and less costly to avoid, I believe it will be said of us that not only did we face these challenges courageously, that indeed we ran toward these giants. And I want to give you a couple of examples in case you don't remember these days. I'll bet you remember these days, the last two years. The last two years have been hard ones for every church across the country and around the world. They've been hard for us. They've been good for us these last two years, but they've been hard. And we have faced an unknown and threatening giant. Your leaders, your elders, your pastors, we had to make countless decisions, both large and small. It seemed day by day we were pivoting and changing and making new decisions. And inevitably, every decision we made made someone mad. We wanted to be safe. We wanted to be prudent. We wanted to care for our community, and we did so by following protocols and providing spaces for thousands and thousands of tests to be carried out, for thousands and thousands of vaccines to be administered. We wanted to be that kind of a citizen, but we also felt that churches needed to be treated equitably by the government. We also felt that in a time of fear and uncertainty, spiritual health was just as important as physical health. And we were determined as soon as possible to provide a place where people could return to worship in person in the presence of their church family. And that is what we sought to do. We wanted to be good citizens. And we sought to be good citizens. But then came a mandate. You might remember this mandate. It was a mandate that forbade singing in worship. You remember that? People, we were told, would not be allowed to sing. You know, you look through scriptures, God commands his people to worship him in song. And we were not willing to silence our worshipers. And so your session, your elders proclaimed boldly and publicly and in writing that we would not forbid what the Lord requires, that we would allow our worshipers to sing. And we realized that it might result in sanctions against us. We were willing to accept that. It was a bridge too far for us. We thought it a battle worth fighting, and so we ran toward that giant. And by the way, I believe that the Lord has blessed and honored that courageous decision. Ten years ago, ten years ago, we faced another giant. Ten years ago, we realized that despite our best efforts of renewal and reformation, that our former denomination was headed in the wrong direction. And it wasn't just about sexuality stuff. That would have been easy to point out. That was only a symptom of what was going on. We realized that there were struggles over core theological convictions. We realized that there was a movement away from the uh, obedience of Scripture as God's Word. I remember at that time as we were languishing in this, struggling through this, I remember sitting down with a group of 12 pastors and I suggested, why don't we start by just identifying some basic doctrines upon which we can agree. Make that our starting point, our core theological convictions. I said, how about we start here? The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's start there. Surely we can agree, all of us, on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And three of those pastors could not affirm the bodily resurrection of Jesus. 
And it was right then that I knew that we had to change denominations. And your session courageously agreed. We ran toward that giant, and after a year of careful and prayerful and respectful discernment, we made the daunting and frankly costly decision to leave our denomination and enter the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I believe it will be most of, one of the most significant milestones in my 35 years of ministry here. And it was absolutely the right decision to make. We are in the right church home. But it meant that we had to run toward the giant to make that happen. By the way, in two weeks, June 5th, one service. You've got to pay attention to this because you'll be late otherwise. Well, you're always late, but you'll be later. <laughs> you'll be even later. <laughs> June 5th, 10 o'clock. What time? 10 o'clock. For some of you, say 9.30. No, it'll be 10 o'clock on June 5th. We are going to have a celebration because that recognizes the 10th anniversary of our move into the EPC. And we're going to have some folks who are going to travel across the country to come and be a part of this. Some surprise video greetings from people that you are going to remember. It will be a wonderful celebration and a trip down memory lane. <clears throat> so put it on your calendar now, especially you who forget things like that. Put it on your calendar. June 5th, two weeks, 10 o'clock. These are <clears throat> just two examples of, I think, the courage that our church has displayed over the years, why this matters to us. When the city was considering allowing marijuana shops in town, this congregation turned out in mass at city council and urged them to not do so. When a leader has suffered a moral lapse, and we've had more than one of those occur, unfortunately, we have never swept it under the rug. We move towards it. We deal with it, hopefully graciously, but courageously and transparently. When we were the object of unfair journalistic attacks, and we were, especially when we made the move into a new denomination, we responded with truth and courage and, frankly, some righteous anger until the accusations were retracted. Like David, we are not looking for a fight. We are not eager for a fight. But if the witness of Jesus Christ is impaired or impugned, we have always been willing to do what needs to be done to defend the name of Christ. We embrace courage. We run toward the giant. And if you are new to us, if you have come to us in recent months or years, you ought to know about that about us and decide whether you want to be a part of such body because the time will come again when we need to stand together. But I pray that this is not just a corporate value. I pray that this value of, of courage will leach down into the lives of every single member of this church and every single family because every one of us has giants. Every one of us has looming threats that mock us and frighten us and challenge us and we can hide from them we can cower as they march toward us, or we can rise up and run toward that giant. And here's the kicker. We do not do this in our own strength. Biblical courage is not about our gritting our teeth and taking a deep breath and bucking up. When Goliath threatened David, his response was, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. We live lives of courage, not because we decide to be courageous, but because we remember whose we are and who lives within us. Jesus was the most courageous person to ever live. 
Knowing what awaited him, knowing the horrors that awaited him in Jerusalem, we are told, nevertheless, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. His disciples urged him to flee. They urged him to turn tail and run. They urged him, head back to Galilee where you can hide in anonymity and and safety. But Jesus knew that the battle had to be joined. And knowing the betrayal and the pain and the fear and the brutality, the loneliness, the rejection that he would encounter, Jesus nevertheless moved toward it. And it is this power, the power of courageous Christ, that allows us to embrace his courage as a church and as a people. When Jesus came walking to his disciples on the water, Matthew tells us that his disciples were terrified. They cried out in horror. And Jesus comforted them with these empowering words. He said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Say that with me. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage, Jesus said. Don't be afraid, Jesus said. Those were commands. But it is those middle three words that make make it possible for us to embrace the courage that Jesus wants to impute to us. Whatever the giant we face. And those three words are, it is I. Those three words in Greek, ego in me, it is I, are actually a translation of the holy, unpronounceable name of God, Yahweh. It is the translation of I am who I am, ego in me, it is I. And when Jesus commands us to take courage, when Jesus commands us not to to fear, that command is grounded in one life-giving, one encouraging affirmation. It is I, Yahweh, I am who I am, the creator of all. That is the one who is filling you with courage and purging you of your fear. We do not embrace courage because we are determined to do so. We embrace the courageous Christ who lives within us. You are not able to face this alone, he says, but with me you can. You're not strong enough, but I am. You're not brave enough, but I am. You're not steady enough, but I am. You're not powerful enough, but I am. You're not wealthy enough, but I am. You're not rich enough, influential enough, connected enough, smart enough, but I am. There are plenty of things that frighten us these days, aren't there? We have a panoply from which we can choose. A COVID resurgence. Take courage. It is I. A market meltdown. Take courage. It is I. Nuclear saber rattling, take courage, it is I. Sexual confusion and propaganda, take courage, it is I. I spoke this last week to a man who hates his job, but he's afraid to take something else. Take courage, it is I. I spoke to another man whose marriage is in peril. Take courage, it is I. And to another whose heart is working at 10% capacity. Take courage. It is I. Whatever giant you face, whatever Goliath is lumbering towards you, he has nothing in the face of the Yahweh who lives within you. Take courage, Jesus says. 
It is I. Do not be afraid. Run toward that giant. So what giant do you face this day? For service, it was someone who's just lost their loved one. And I'm so sorry. Perhaps your giant is a bad diagnosis or a crumbling marriage or a rebellious child or a meaningless job or a retirement account that is shrinking by the day. <laughs> I, I understand that fear. An uncertain future. I have my own Goliath. I have one who, whose shadow looms over me. And it is easy for me, I confess, to focus on how big he seems and to forget how big and powerful is he who lives in me. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And so, Lord Jesus, we claim this promise. We obey your command to take courage. We Obey your command not to fear because we believe your assertion that you are God, the I am Yahweh, the creator of all. By your life, by your example, you showed us what it means to live courageously, to run toward the giant. That which we might have fled, which we have, would, would, might have run from, you marched towards as you set your face. All of the horror that awaited you, you stepped boldly toward it. And having faced that down, you have demonstrated that in you, in your power and through your spirit, there is nothing, not even illness, not even enemies, not even death that can defeat you. And therefore, because you live in us, because you are our God, none of those things can defeat us either. And so, Lord, we pray that we will be brave. We will be courageous. Not because we grit our teeth and try harder to do so, but because we live into the reality that the God of all creation lives in us. May we bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. May we, by our witness, stand against a culture that would impugn, disdain, even destroy the witness of Jesus. May we as a people, we as a church, we as families stand bold and stand strong and courageous because you, Yahweh, are our God. For we pray these things in your matchless name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.